Well, we're still in this series that we're calling Heartbeat. We're kind of trying to start the year off right and look together as a church at what our core values are. And our goal is to see from Scripture how the core values and the mission that define Maricopa Springs Family Church are some of the same core values and the mission that's really at the very heartbeat of what God is doing in the world. And today we're going to spend our time looking at this core value of transformation. Uh, The Christian life, I think, is a life of transformation. It's not uh, static. It doesn't stay the same. And even when it doesn't seem to be so, God is working in the lives of his children to develop them, to change them, to grow them, ultimately to transform them more and more into the image of his son, Jesus. So our core value for transformation, it's on the back of your bulletin if you want to flip it over and find it real quick. It's stated like this. We want to be people who are becoming more like Jesus. I know that's really hard to wrap your mind around, right? But I think that there may be some misunderstanding in kind of what transformation means. So let me tell you just a story from my life real quick. Uh... When I was in college, I decided to go to a small private Christian school outside of Chicago. And my hope was that in this uh, small Christian school, I would find this body, this student body that uh, would really stimulate me in my faith to grow in my relationship with God. That I would find all kinds of people who were just as eager as I was to be transformed. But it didn't take me too long to sort of fall into this cynicism that maybe too often grips college students. Looking back, I really have no doubt that the majority of my classmates really loved Jesus. But at the time, it just didn't feel like that. Okay, well, We had to go to chapel three days a week. It was mandatory. And I would look around this room filled with these college students, my peers, and I would see people sleeping or people with their headphones in watching movies on their, their iPhones, right? And uh, at one point I decided I'm going to start a Bible study with some of my roommates and my classmates. And so uh, I gathered people from my dorm and we met together. And that went on for about four weeks before the excitement waned and it was just me alone in this study room. I decided that I wanted to start a, a prayer ministry to pray for missions around the world. Just gather people up to just pray for the gospel being proclaimed around the world. And so I got the news out. I, I spread it around campus, the date that we were going to start, and I showed up and I was the only one there. Nobody else came. Maybe it was just my poor leadership. But the way that I understood this was that people were apathetic. Nobody cared. They knew about Jesus, but there wasn't really a whole lot of transforming power in that name in their lives. And then one day in one of my classes, my professor, he mentioned this revival that had taken place at this school in the 80s. And he told these stories about incredible things happening. And I I became very intrigued. I began to wonder if maybe what my school needed was another revival a movement of the Spirit in sort of this miraculous way. So I did some research. I found out there was a professor who had written a book. He documented the whole thing, and he wrote a book. And I managed to track it down in our library, even though I think only five copies had ever been published. And I just, I gobbled that book up. I think I read it in just a couple of days. And I began to really sincerely believe what this school needs is a revival. 
and I could be the person to bring that revival about on my campus. So I started to pray, and I prayed. I, I, I prayed for my school. I prayed for the kids who went there. I prayed that God would give me a chance to maybe lead the student body through this transformation. I prayed specifically that God would give me an opportunity to do that in chapel from the the pulpit, more or less. Strangely, just a few weeks later, I got a call, actually, from the chaplain's office, and they said, we we would love for you to come and lead our, our student body in the opening prayer, the invocation at the beginning of chapel. So I assumed, here's God answering my prayer, right? This was going to be the start of my revival on campus. So the day came, I had this prayer prepared, I got up, and I remember it, at least in my memory, I remember it being very enthusiastic, it was passionate, it was very sincere. It may have been a little bit preachy, but it was inspiring, I thought. And this was definitely going to be the beginning of this campus transformation. Okay, true story. This is a true story. And when I finished the prayer, I opened my eyes, I looked out around the room, and you could imagine what I saw. People sleeping. People with their headphones in, watching movies. And my revival, it failed spectacularly, and so the next semester I transferred to a different school in Boston. <laughs> true, true story. Okay, but it wasn't until much later that I realized that my revival failed miserably because it was my revival, right? I believed with naive but sincere conviction that I could transform my school, that I could do this thing. I believed that my efforts, my labor could bring about the transformation of hearts that I wanted to see so desperately. And I thought that I could manufacture by sheer effort a transformation of people's lives at my school. But that's just not how it works, right? So before we get to what transformation is, I want to tell you what transformation is not, okay? This is why I wanted you to have your notes because there's kind of a lot here. And so hopefully you have a pen to fill this in as well or maybe, maybe a note app on your smartphone or something like that. Just don't put the headphones in, okay? So transformation, first of all, it is not, I will do this. I will do this. Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's not something that we do. You and I, we are powerless to transform a heart, whether it be ours or somebody else's. Only God can take dry bones and breathe them back to life, like Ezekiel. And if you're looking at yourself as the source of transformation, then you're looking in the wrong direction. Okay, transformation number two is not an effort of the will. How many times have you swore to yourself that you will not do this thing anymore or you will do this thing forever after only to find that within a very short period of time you fail to follow through on this commitment, right? That is willing yourself to do something and look no further than the month after New Year's to see that people just don't will themselves to do things very well, okay? Willing or, or willing yourself is not the primary force behind transformation. Three, transformation is not, am I going too fast? Do I need to re-say those? I will do this is number one. An effort of the will is number two. Number three, transformation is not moralism, Transformation is not moralism. 
Moralism is this idea that God wants us to be good and virtuous and upstanding people. And when we meet that description, God is happy with us. And when we fail at that description, God is mad at us. And when we're bad, we have failed in his eyes. And when we're good, he gives us the thumbs up, okay? And setting ourselves under some kind of moral code of conduct has never led to transformation of the human heart. Laws and morals, really all they do is help us see how depraved we are, how poorly we can follow God's law. So the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 7 that the law, all it does, morals, all they do is show us the bankruptcy of our hearts. Number four, transformation is not information. And yet I'm going to bombard you with information this morning, which I have to laugh at as ironic. But transformation is not information. I bet that we all can think of somebody probably who's a legalistic Christian, who knows all kinds of things about theology and doctrine, who can rip us a new one with how they flip through the pages of their Bible to quote scripture right and left. And yet their life is so void of this character that's consistent with a deep and intimate love for Jesus. They know the light of the gospel. They definitely know the truth of the gospel. They have all kinds of information about God and the Bible, but they don't know the heat of Jesus burning in their soul. And so transformation is not just information. Number five, transformation is not discipleship. We're going to talk about discipleship in a few weeks, how that too is a core value here at Maricopa Springs. But transformation is different than discipleship. Discipleship is putting off the old self and putting on the new self in Christ. Colossians 3 talks about that. That's what we're going to study in a couple of weeks. But transformation is something different. It's different than discipleship. So then what is transformation, right? First, transformation is something that God does in us. It is holy and entirely a work of God. It's not something that we can claim credit for. It's not, I will do this, but rather, God is doing this. Turn with me in your Bibles, Ephesians 2, 22. I think maybe I put it in your notes, but I like to make you work, burn some calories. Flip to Ephesians 2, verse 22. It says this in Ephesians 2, 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You can see all of the different nuances there. Do you see where the driving force of transformation comes in? It starts, in him, him, that is Christ Jesus. So transformation comes through the power of Christ at work in our lives. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. The grammar of this sentence is passive as it refers to us, the subject, okay? We are the ones being built by the power of Christ at work within us. Psalm 127 verse 1 puts it this way, Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. And so God himself is the primary cause of us being built. He's the one who effects transformation in our lives. 
Ephesians 2.22, I'm back there again. It reiterates this idea at the very end, right? You probably saw that. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. How? By the Spirit. By the Spirit. So as this verse in Ephesians 2 depicts for us, transformation, it's a work of God. We can't manufacture it through good morals or an effort of the will or even by gathering information about the Bible. Okay, number two, God brings transformation through struggle. God brings transformation through struggle. I I think it's just human nature that we want to live safe, easy, comfortable lives. But God, I think, tends to bring the greatest transformation of our character through the difficulties that he walks us through, through the pain, through the darkness, through the suffering, the trials, and the pruning that we endure. The joys and the highs of life, they definitely lead to growth, right? That's for sure. But the struggle that God takes us through is used by his hand to produce transformation, not just growth. And Job, I think, is an excellent example of this, okay? This is one of the Bible, or books of the Bible that I, for all of my study of it, I, I just simply don't understand. At the end of Job, after Job has been through this really senseless suffering, he's lost his family, his wealth, his security, and his health. Job has this incredible transformational encounter with God, where God speaks to him out of the whirlwind. And after this experience with God, Job says these words in Job 42.5. He says, I had heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And Job certainly knew God through the good times, but it was the pain and the difficulty of the struggle that opened his eyes in a transformational way to truly see God for who God is. Okay, to illustrate this in another way, Uh, The times that are good, they definitely grow us like a tree, right? But it's the struggle that God leads us through that cause us to actually bear fruit as a tree. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it. Jeremiah 17, verses 7 through 8 says this. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream And does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of the drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And the heat and the drought are the times of struggle that we walk through, the times of difficulty. But in those times of struggle, that's when we're transformed into the kind of tree that reaches down deep into the living streams of Christ Jesus to continue to bear fruit even in fruitless times. And so although pain and struggle and difficulty, although dryness is a hard season to walk through, these are actually blessed seasons for the believer because God brings transformation through our desperate dependence on him. And thank God for seasons of joy and ecstasy and ease because they're nice, right? We, we need those and we do grow. But also, thank God for the seasons of darkness and dryness where he transforms us 
in this dependence on Him. Okay, number three. Ultimately, transformation is God changing our hearts so that we want God for God's sake, not for the sake of the high or the growth or the excitement that comes with knowing Him. So, transformation is God changing our hearts so we want God for God's sake. It's, it's easy to, to see that many Christians early on in their walk with Christ, they love God for the things that he gives them, right? They love him for the forgiveness that he offers and the freedom that comes with that. They love him for the promise of heaven and this hope of eternal life. They love him for the comfort of his presence. It makes them feel warm and significant. They love him for the security that they find in him in a world that's so unstable. And all of those things are good, but they are gifts from God. And there comes a time in the Christian life where we realize that there's something greater than the gifts that God gives. We experience a transformation of the heart where the gifts become pale in comparison to the one who gives the gifts. And we begin to love God for God's sake, not just for what God can do for us or what he gives us. Philippians 3, I think Paul tells us a little bit about this. In verses 7 through 8, the Apostle Paul writes this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And Paul has been transformed. He now looks past the good and wonderful gifts that God has to give him to see that what he truly desires is actually more of God himself. And he doesn't care so much anymore for the things that God gives because the desire of his heart is God alone. And that's transformation. I put it this way in your notes if you want to read along. When we no longer want the high of worship because it makes us feel good, but we want God even if being in his presence is somewhat terrifying. When we no longer want to avoid sin because sin is bad, but we find the appeal of sin has lost its grip on us and faded in comparison to the joy of having Christ. When we no longer serve God because it makes us feel appreciated or because it's our duty to do so, but we serve God because nothing makes us more happy than when we decrease and Jesus increases. That is what transformation looks like. So it's a time, I think it's time now for a real life story of transformation. I want to invite Lloyd to come on up here and share his story about the work that God has been doing in his life to transform him. Well, good morning. First of all, let me say before I, let me preface what I'm going to say by saying that this, what I do today is the hardest thing I have ever done. This is a story about transformation. It's one rooted in pain. 
For me, it started when I was six years old. My siblings and I had an abusive babysitter. She used to stick us with pins and pinch us as well. I remember being afraid all the time. This went on for about a year until we banded together and told our mother about it. Needless to say, we never saw that person again. Shortly after that incident, we moved to another part of town. And like most people, you hope that part of your life is over. Sadly, when I was nine years old, I was sexually abused by my babysitter from next door. Only this time, I didn't tell anyone. <laughs> Thus, began my silent shame. It was about this time that I started looking at porn. I thought it was just a thing that boys did. I went through that stage where the mother, your mother finds your magazines and tells you not to bring them in the house. I thought I was being clever, but she always found my stash. What I didn't realize was that was the beginning of my addiction to porn. In my adulthood, I continued to watch dirty movies and magazines, and it soon became my coping mechanism for things that were going wrong in my life. My addiction carried over into my dating life and into my marriages. My first wife was verbally and emotionally abusive, and I allowed myself to be totally emasculated which made me seek out porn in an attempt to make myself feel better. I didn't feel worthy on any level. I was so defeated that it became my refuge. Things got worse when I got my first computer. Now I didn't have to look at movies anymore. With one click, I could look at anything I wanted. I was only limited by my imagination. Instead of feeling better, it only made my shame greater. Every time I looked at those images on my computer, I felt an overwhelming sense of shame. I didn't know why. My first wife told me that I was addicted to porn, but I didn't believe it. And in my head, I thought it couldn't be true. The lie that I told myself was that I was a good person and good people didn't have addictions like that. Sadly, my marriage ended and I felt like a failure. Porn wasn't the root cause of my marriage breaking up, but it would certainly didn't help. Now I was in a foreign country, and it became my way of life. I didn't have the illusion of being married anymore to keep me from seeking it out. Still, I felt dirty and ashamed. I started another relationship, hoping that this time I wouldn't be a failure. I could go for weeks and months at a time without looking at her. I began to think everything was going okay but that demon would not leave me alone. It always told me that I wasn't strong enough to live without it. And at some point, I gave into temptation and was back to my old habits. And my second wife was more abusive than the first. I thought that this was what I deserved. No one really wanted me, and that was okay. I thought I was doomed to this life forever, and even having a daughter didn't stop my addiction. I was secretive, and I thought I was being clever. And in the end, the truth always came to the surface. What's worse is that I called myself a Christian. I wasn't going to church that often, and I had become a C 
E-O, Christmas, Easter only. I believed in God, but I retreated from him. I didn't turn to him to help me through my addiction. I did not come face to face with the word addiction until I married Donna. I thought I was fine until I started to do the same things that caused me problems in the past. I began to sabotage my marriage to her. I was looking for a way out without really knowing it. Time after time, I heard her and promised that I wouldn't do it again. I was still looking at porn and thinking everything was fine. I tried my best to hide it, and I would get caught. My shame was unbearable, but I couldn't stop myself. I was completely out of control. It came to a head for me one Tuesday night at the radio station. She sent me a text detailing all the things that she had found. She told me that she had had enough and that my marriage was over. I had until the next day to find another place to live or call Grady for help. At that moment, I knew I couldn't run anymore. I remember sitting in my car with Satan telling me that I didn't have to admit my shame. I could always find another lie to cover my disgrace. For the first time in my life, I knew I had a problem. I said the word addiction out loud. And there's a certain amount of freedom when you verbalize what you've been thinking. The following day, I started the process of allowing God to break the chains of addiction. The first thing I did, I had to do was to tell God I couldn't do this alone. I was more broken than I ever imagined. But God still loved me. God lifted my burden, and I am free. I am not naive enough to think that Satan won't put these things in my path to draw me back in. But now I am armed with God's word and the knowledge that my addiction does not define me. The best part of the process for me happened when I went to Grady. His response to my admission was no judgment. Through love and God's word, he showed me that I wasn't alone in my feelings. When I opened up to him, he helped me to peel back more than 40 years of layers. He helped me to understand that porn addiction is just as insidious as an addiction is to heroin. In essence, I've had to rewire my brain. It is not an easy process, and I've had to do a lot of work. That's the most important lesson to understand. God gives you the tools, but you have to do the work. One of the reasons I share my testimony is that I know that there are men like me in this church, men who struggle with an addiction to porn, 
those who tell themselves the same lies that I have told myself for more than 40 years. I am not afraid of those who will judge me because of what I am doing. My heart is clear about the steps that I have taken. In Romans 8.1, it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. I know that God has called me to do this. You don't have to be afraid anymore. My story is no different than yours. I can't judge because I've been where you are right now. I can tell you this. The battle against porn addiction can be won. God knows your pain and he knows your struggle. But you cannot do it alone. Talk to God and tell him about your troubles. Saying it out loud begins the process of healing. I am a witness to the power of transformation. God can change your heart. He has changed mine, and I am in the best place that I could possibly be. And he can do the same for you if you let him. This addiction will be with me for the rest of my life. But I am strong in my faith. And I am strong in my commitment not to let this define my existence. And I will leave you with this. And this is a verse that I say every day from Philippians chapter 4. I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. Thanks, Lloyd. Let me, um, let me pray for you real quick. Father, I thank you for Lloyd, and I thank you for his willingness to, to share this, and I pray that you would continue to transform his heart and his life. I thank you for his courage, and I pray that you would continue to bless him on this journey that he's on. In your son's name, amen. Um, really, Lloyd, thank you. It, it does take a lot of courage to stand in front of a room of people and confess your sin like that. You know some of these people, and some of them are strangers, but, but I know from our conversations that God has really been doing this work of transformation in your heart. Um, and I know that your concern as a result is not what the people in this room think about you, but rather your concern is what God thinks about you, and your heart is secure in the truth that He loves you, not because you're good, but because He is good because he won that love for you in Christ Jesus. And like you mentioned, Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, now, I want you to understand, th- this kind of transformation, this is an act of God, truly. I mean, 40 years wrestling with that silently by yourself, and, and something has changed because of what God is doing inside of you. Quick side note before I move on. You know, if, if you're struggling with this addiction in particular, um, 
you're, you're not alone. Statistics show it's fairly common, both in the church and in the world at, at large. Um, and I want to encourage you to get help. Uh, reach out to someone from our church. Talk to one of our, our elders. We would love to talk with you about that. Uh, maybe you just know a friend here who's trustworthy, and, and so maybe you need to have that conversation with them. There is power in, in speaking uh, about the chains that you're bound under. I've also created a little page, a little web page on our uh, website, maricopasprings.com. Under the connect page is another page titled resources, where there's a couple books up there, like free PDF ebooks that you can download that uh, might give you some additional resources, okay? Um, but I think the Lloyd story really reminds us that transformation doesn't stem from who we are or what we do. It comes from who God is and what he is doing. And I would dare to say that transformation uh, is usually not born out of joy or ecstasy in our relationship with God. It's usually born out of this surrender that God brings us to, these, these moments that are breaking points. And I'm not talking about the surrender that comes when you first give your life to Jesus, right? We, we know that there's this moment where we understand what the gospel is, and so we surrender our life to Christ. But what I'm talking about is a surrender that happens over time as we come to trust God and know him more deeply. As we come to see him in more of his fullness, and he transforms us into creatures that are more and more able to reflect his glory, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, I think, kind of helps us understand this idea a little bit more. It says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Again, this is the Apostle Paul one more time, and he says that transformation of the Christian life it comes from the Lord. It comes from the Spirit of God at work in our lives to take us from what we were and make us into something new. The only thing I disagreed with you on there, Lloyd, is that this doesn't have to be with you for the rest of your life because in Christ you are a new creation that reflects His glory. And so this is different than just growth. This is transformation like what Lloyd has been going through. I would say it's sort of like a caterpillar, right? A caterpillar throughout its life grows. It, it eats and it gets larger. But the growth that a caterpillar goes through is quite a different thing than the transformation of becoming a butterfly. That's something else entirely. It's a category change from one thing to another, which is what Jesus does in our lives. Paul says here in 2 Corinthians that as we behold the glory of the Lord in greater and greater degrees, that we become transformed to reflect Him more. It's something God does in us as we see and experience and wonder in His glory. It's something God does in us as we come to love Him for His sake. So our church has a value not just for growth, that's important, very important, but we have a value for transformation. Growth is something that we participate in, that is discipleship. But transformation is the complete overhaul of our lives and character, which is entirely the work of God. Okay, so if it is entirely the work of God, is it possible for us to help this along at all? Can we play a part in transformation? Or do we all just sit around and wait for God to like 
strike us like lightning, and until it does, we're sort of off the hook. Okay, here's your application, okay? Because I think that we can play a part in this. As Lloyd's world began to unravel, he could have chalked this crisis up to just another failed marriage, something that he couldn't help. He could have blamed it on his past and said, it's not my fault. He could have continued to deny this addiction that he had and continued to tell himself the lie that it wasn't an issue. He could have played it safe and he could have kept God at a nice, clean distance so that God didn't come in and mess everything up in his life. But that's not what Lloyd did. He responded to God's invitation to a transformed life. Okay, so here are a couple of ways that I think we can do this, okay? Like fine-tuning a knob on a radio to find the frequency at which God is really at work in our lives. First of all, we expose sin in our lives. We face it. We don't deny it. We don't cast blame on other people or circumstances. We repent of it, and we let God comfort us and console us in that. And God's not mad at us if God's not mad at us for our sin if Christ is our savior, and he's never surprised by the darkness of our hearts. So we don't have to hide. We don't have to feel shame, like Lloyd was saying. Jesus says these words, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Man, moralism is heavy. But the transformation that Christ brings is light. And there's no greater burden than the burden of sin. It destroys us from the inside. And Jesus offers to trade our, our, our sin for his righteousness. And so transformation involves casting off the burden of sin onto the cross of Christ so that God can renew our identity in Jesus. And we give him our brokenness and he gives us rest for our souls. Second, we need a safe community within which to be transformed. I know there's a lot here this morning, but hang with me for a few more minutes. I think transformation is like molting or shedding maybe. When an animal molts its skin, it is vulnerable as that process is taking place. Molting, it's a time of transformation when the animal has outgrown its skin or its exoskeleton. And so the only option for the animal is to literally shed its outer layer. And it's a process that takes time. And during that time, the animal is often susceptible to attacks from predators or wounds from the outside. Or go back to the caterpillar, right? When it's in the cocoon undergoing its metamorphosis, its transformation, it's incredibly vulnerable. It's defenseless. Ephesians 4.32 commands us to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And people don't experience transformation if they're in a community where people around them are not tender-hearted. The molting of our old selves, the transformation into Christ-likeness, that never happens in a community where people feel fear to be honest about who they are. And so the church, it always needs to be a place of safety and grace where the value of transformation is held so high that people are free to become what God is making them without fear of condemnation. Lloyd would never have stood up here 
and shared this story if he didn't think that you were safe people to be honest with? And where there's no safety, then there's no transformation. There's just this hypocrisy and everyone walks around pretending like they're all good when in reality they're not. Third, responding to God's invitation to transformation, it's going to require a broken heart and an honest spirit. There's no place for pride in transformation. If we are too proud to be broken or too proud to see our brokenness, then we're never going to see the power of God at work to transform us. And brokenness is actually a wonderful gift from God. Paul talks about it, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. You've probably heard this. He's struggling with an issue that's plaguing him. We don't know for sure what it is exactly, but he prays to God, take this thing away from me. Relieve me of it. He prays earnestly and he prays repeatedly. And this is God's response to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Believe it or not, God actually wanted Paul to remain in this place of weakness and brokenness. It was God's design for him. God thought it was good for him. And Paul could have fought it, he could have denied it, he could have pretended he was okay, but instead he trusted God. He embraced it, knowing that God's purpose was ultimately to transform him through this. So maybe we can learn from Paul that fighting the work of God in our lives, even when what he's doing is hard, actually stifles the work God is doing to transform us. Four, finally, Transformation, it only takes place in a life that's truly surrendered to God. We all know that being a Christian means we give our lives to Jesus, but the honest truth is we all hold things back from him. We tend to be mostly surrendered to God. There are places of our lives that don't actually belong to him. So maybe we love him, and and I believe that's true, we do if we profess to be Christians, but we haven't yet surrendered something like our anger to him. We hold on to that. We love him, but our, our career trajectory, that's ours to do what we want with. We love him, but there's no way that we're going to surrender our children to him because that's just too hard to trust God for that thing. Or we love him, but when it comes to our finances, he's really not qualified to be in charge, right? We love him, but the purity of our eyes or the purity of our marriage is really not something we want him to dabble in. But God wants to transform these things. He wants us to willingly surrender them to him so that he can transform them. I think Psalm 34 touches on this idea beautifully. This is where I would like you to turn if you've had your finger in your Bible for a while. Psalm 34. Maybe I put it in the notes. Did I put it in the notes? All right. Then you can look there. I just want to read this. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So look, the Christian life, it's a call to walk through transformation. That's why we have this value in our church. And what God does is transform people. But our problem is we can't transform ourselves. We can't force it. We can't manufacture it. We can't will it into existence. Yet the wonderful thing is God has already accomplished it. He's already guaranteed it and secured it. Maybe you've seen a theme recently in my teaching. How has he done it? He's transformed the human condition through Christ's willingness to surrender, to go to the cross. Notice how God didn't transform the human condition on a mountaintop. That's not where it took place. He didn't do it through ecstasy. He didn't accomplish it through overwhelming feelings of joy. God transformed humanity on the valley floor of Golgotha. He transformed humanity in the dark trench of Calvary. And the cross was the lowest of lows. It was the darkest of nights. Yet that was where God took the trajectory of humanity from destruction to restoration. And it was a work of God. It wasn't a work of man because it's God who transforms. Did any of the disciples follow Jesus to the cross? No, because they couldn't go there. Only God could go there because it's God who transforms. And transforming your life, it's his work and his alone. 